0: You can join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where we are again today, looking at verses 4 and 5. Some of you have heard me say before that I love studying grammar. I even commented to you that, and I'll say it again, that when my children were younger and I took them into the school every morning, a Christian school that was about, you know, anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour away, depending on Los Angeles traffic, um, I enjoyed in the car rides in the morning teaching them various points of grammar, gerunds and participles and all that. They did not enjoy it at all. Um. My family would also tell you that I've been known to correct something in the grammar, something one of them said, though. Reality is I stopped doing that as much uh, several years ago because I found out they really didn't enjoy that either. One of them, though, I'm pretty sure is my oldest son, now that I think about it. One of them actually gave me a special t-shirt. I don't normally do show and tell, but gave me a t-shirt several years ago. I think it was my oldest son. It's got a badge on it, like a police badge. It says, Grammar Police. And underneath it says, to correct and to serve. (laughs) So uh, I appreciate that T-shirt. One specific aspect of grammar catches my attention, I think, more than other aspects, and that is the proper use of pronouns. You know, like when to use the pronoun I and when to use me, one's subjective case and one's objective case, which I know you know that. Along with the proper use of who and whom, my radars are up for those. I try to get them down, but they're, they're up, and many people don't use those pronouns correctly. I think I have grown in my ability to just ignore it, and <laughs> not to think about it, Think, go to my happy place and think of something else. <laughs> but to take that a step further, I do cringe over the whole pronoun controversy going on in our culture. I mean, obviously, everything related to the LGBTQ agenda and the transgender agenda has done nothing but cause damage and confusion in this world. But certainly, one of the places where this confusion shows up, and I'm, I'm speaking mostly on the practical level, the impact, is the controversy over pronouns. And, and we've all heard this. That the normal use of pronouns is being thrown out in some educational institutions. Some of you have had to deal with that. At places of employment, pressure is being put on you to use certain pronouns and not others and so forth. You see it in the entertainment industry and so on. Individuals are being told that they can choose whatever pronouns they want. A biological male who wants to identify as a female can just choose to be called by Female pronouns, the pronouns she and her, and vice versa. A female could choose to be called by male pronouns, he and him, and so forth. I think even more confusing than that is an individual can reject all those pronouns and just can be identified by the plural pronouns they and them. I think that issue concerning pronouns irritates me as much as anything else related to all those agendas. And I think the reason is, is because what I believe about language. I actually believe language is important, and therefore pronouns are important. It's confusing to read a news article. Maybe you've done this recently. It's happened to me a couple of times just recently. You read a news article, and it's about a murder or something, and something's happened. They get down there, and all of a sudden it says something about they. And I stop and I go, I, oh, I missed something. i got to go back and read the I thought it was only one person that was the murderer. Evidently, I missed something. There could be a whole group of murderers somewhere in here. It says they. And you read it again. You go, no, there was only one. It's that pronoun confusion. Frankly, the whole idea that people can choose what pronoun they want others to use is, here's several words, just pick one, silly, idiotic, ludicrous, it's all insanity because clear communication is important. We, we can't just play fast and loose with language as if there are no consequences to that. Not if we're wanting to communicate well and communicate clearly. If we don't communicate clearly, chaos results in some way. I mean, just think about how we would read Scripture If we didn't have clarity, if the clarity is lost because of misuse of pronouns, I just picked a few. Genesis 3, where after the fall, God confronts Adam and Eve with their sin, and here's the man's answer. He told God, well, it's that woman you gave me. She's the one that is at fault change the pronoun. The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, they gave me from the tree tree and I ate. You'd want to go back and go, who else was there? Oh, it's just Eve. Even worse, read Isaiah 53, the prophecy about the Messiah that way in his crucifixion. Just some samples from Isaiah 53 about the Messiah. It uses the pronoun he there properly. It's he was despised. He was crucified. Our iniquities were placed on him. That makes sense. Not if you read it this way. They were despised and forsaken, like one from whom men hide their face. They were despised, and we did not esteem them. Our sorrows they carried, yet we ourselves esteemed them stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But they were pierced through for our transgressions, they were crushed for our iniquities. The, chast- the chastening for our well being fell upon them. That makes no sense. In John chapter 1, verse 21, the disciples came to Jesus, and Jesus was speaking to them, and they were having a discussion, and the disciples asked him some questions about his identity. You know, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? I mean, read it a different way, John 1 21. The disciples asked they, them, the disciples asked them, Are you Elijah? And they said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And they answered, No. That makes no sense. There are thousands of verses that would be impossible to to interpret accurately if pronouns and their antecedents, that's the noun that the pronouns are referring back to, if those aren't clear. And just think what we would lose studying the promises of God, we'd lose encouragement and comfort and, and all of that. And I realize I'm belaboring this point this morning in my introduction just a bit. It's just that I couldn't help but ponder all this confusion as I studied our passage for today. I think there is a very important distinction lost if the author, Paul, was woke, and he's not. There'd be confusion if he was not using his pronouns in a specific manner. So our passage is 1 Thessalonians 5. We're just looking at two verses today, verses 4 and 5. What we find here in this passage is a very stark contrast between saved people and lost people. They're the two categories of people. All people fit in one of these two categories. And as we will see, one of the ways the Author, the Apostle Paul, refers to the two groups in chapter 5. We've already seen it in a previous study, is with pronouns. It's not the only way he does it, but it's one way. Now, before we delve into this and see what Paul says, let's just be reminded once again of something I said earlier in earlier studies of why he's writing to the Thessalonians here, why he's contrasting even the saved and the lost. It was to comfort the Thessalonians, they needed that comfort. They needed encouragement because they had begun to to worry about some things. They began to worry about the future, for example. Even though they had knowledge about what was coming, Paul had been there, Silas had been there, Timothy had been there. They had taught the Thessalonians, including things about the future, but they they were getting confused about some things. Plus, we know that false teachers had swooped in and were attempting to deceive these believers and bring them error, and that was aggravating and stirring up their fears and confusion. So they had, tr- they had questions, questions that troubled them. Timothy, you'll remember, went back to Thessalonica to make a visit to check on them, and when he returned to Paul, he brought those questions with him to Paul. One had to do with their loved ones who had died, Paul had taught them about the future rapture of the church being taken out of the world before judgment came, the day of the Lord. But they had a question, well, what about those loved ones who have died? Do they miss all of that? We saw that Paul gave them the assurance they needed back in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Those dead loved ones, if they were dead in Christ, they would not miss it. In fact, verse 16 of chapter 4 says they're going to rise first. In addition, the apostle addressed the Thessalonians' curiosity about the future, time of judgment called the day of the Lord, this time of of divine wrath and judgment upon unbelief that's coming in the future called the day of the Lord. They were starting to wonder whether they were in that day already. So look back at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Here's what he told them in verses 1 and 2. Now, as to the times and the epics, in other words, the timing of all this, the seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you on that. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord is going to come just like a thief in the night. A couple of things are important there. It's, and one is, you don't need to know the timing of it because the timing has not been revealed precisely. So don't trouble yourself with that. along with this, he wanted to reassure these new believers who were so troubled that they would not face God's wrath anyway. God's wrath and judgment is meant for unbelievers. Look at verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. I mean, pause for a moment and look at that verse. And notice Paul's intentional use of pronouns there. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. That's a strong statement, so I'd say it's pretty important to know whom those pronouns are referring to. Will Paul use them correctly? And therefore, the Thessalonians they had no trouble understanding his point. They didn't have to reread the letter several times like I have to do with some news articles to try to track it back. Whom is he talking about there with the the they and the them? No, he used those pronouns, they and them, to distinguish the Thessalonians who were believers from the unbelievers who will experience God's wrath The ones who were referred to with another term several verses before that. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 12, you find that they're called the outsiders. They, them. And that is an important contrast the contrast between the future of believers and the future of unbelievers. Of all the issues you could be confused on, you don't want to be confused on that one. So I'm grateful Paul was not woke. Now, as we move on in the passage, we're going to see this contrast, though presented another way, not with pronouns per se. He's going to distinguish between day people and night people. Now, you hear that and you might think, oh, you mean like, you know, some people are morning people and some people are night people that like to stay up at night. No, it's not about that. These are descriptions that help define the distinction between believers and unbelievers. And the implications that go with that concerning the future time of judgment called the day of the Lord. And again, the purpose of this contrast was to make it clear to these believers that they did not have to fear all that because believers are light people and therefore they're not going to experience the darkness of the day of the Lord. So I think that's how we can just simply outline our passage here. It's a short passage. What we find here is Paul confirming that there are two distinct spiritual and two contrasting spiritual realms. And That's how we'll go through this passage. Here's the first realm. Number one, the realm of darkness. The realm of darkness. Verse four, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. Notice that opening phrase, but you. That's intended to conjure up a contrast between what he says now and what he just said about the they and the them. And the term you here, the pronoun you, this plural pronoun, is in the emphatic position in the verse at the front, so that's for emphasis, to make this contrast clear. And he even throws in that term of endearing address again, brethren or brothers, that's just an additional way to stress the contrast between the two worlds, the contrast between the believers and the they and the them of verse 3. And as I said, those pronouns in verse 3 refer to unbelievers, the outsiders, the, one who, the ones who are going to be unprepared for future judgment. So the point here in our verse is that these believers are just not in the same realm as unbelievers the realm, the sphere that unbelievers exist in is called darkness. And that concept refers often in Scripture to the realm of of the world, the realm of unbelievers, and it has two primary characteristics here. It's a realm that is dark in two different ways. First of all, it's dark intellectually, intellectually. In other words, this is a sphere characterized by not just ignorance, but spiritual ignorance. They're darkened in their understanding of what God says is true. They don't like the truth. They're they're darkened in their understanding of that, and so they're, they're in darkness intellectually. Ephesians 4 verses 17 through 18 say something about that. Paul is writing to those Ephesian believers, and encouraging them, don't live like the world. Here's how he says it. Walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, verse 18. Darkened. They're darkened in their understanding. Excluded from the life of God. Separated from God. Alienated from God because of the ignorance that's in them. They don't know the truth. And the reason they don't know the truth is because their hearts are hard, he says there. And that ignorance includes the the darkened understanding of the future. They don't go about their lives understanding that they are headed for judgment. So it's a realm that's dark intellectually, and second, it's a realm that's dark morally. This is referring to the darkness of sin, a realm characterized by wickedness and evil. Unbelievers are in the dark because they don't know the truth, but they're also in the dark because they love the fact that they don't know the truth, and they love the fact that, that they're in the world that's evil and wicked because they love wickedness. John 3, verse 19. The light has come into the world, referring to Christ, of course. And how did men respond? They love the darkness rather than the light. They love their deeds, see? Their deeds are evil. That fits the realm of darkness. So that is the spiritual night that engulfs believers, unbelievers rather. It's a spiritual condition that includes both aspects here of darkness, intellectual darkness, moral darkness. As one commentator said, it's the darkness of not knowing what is true and it's the darkness of not doing what is right both sides of it. Like I mentioned, this is symbolic language that's found often in Scripture to to depict this very thing we're discussing, the, the realm of the unbelieving world. So here's just a few other biblical passages. There are many. In the Old Testament, Psalm 82 verse 5, they do not know nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. It's connected to their intellect. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, prophecy about the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be appointed to be a light to the nations. Why? Verse 7, to open blind eyes, to bring out those who are in bondage to darkness. They dwell in darkness. Ephesians 6, verse 12, this reminds us what our struggle is against here. We've got to remember this sometimes, that what we're standing against as believers is not just people. There's evil. Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. 1 John 1, verses 5 and 6, this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, that's His realm, and in Him there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, And yet we're walking and living in the darkness as if that's where we belong, in other words. That's our practice. That's our habit. I'll just read what it says. You can read it. We're lying. We're really in the darkness. That's who we are. So darkness is emblematic of the condition of being alienated from God, estranged from God, due to moral and spiritual and mental and intellectual ignorance and wickedness, that's what characterizes the unredeemed. And this darkness is not something superficial. It, it's penetrated their very being, their hearts, their minds. It blinds them to understanding the glory of the things of God and desiring the things of God. It blinds them to spiritual realities. And it certainly makes them oblivious to what they're headed toward, judgment. That's the habitual sphere in which the people of the world live and move. So back to verse 4, clearly, believers are not part of that. You are not in darkness. I mean, what a wonderful reality that is. Can't you imagine that Paul was writing fast so he could get to that point? (laughs) He wanted to say that. That felt good to write. The readers, believers, are not in darkness. He's writing to the ones and to us who've been spiritually enlightened if we know Christ. We've been actually delivered out of that realm that's controlled by darkness. Colossians 1 verse 13 even says that. He, God the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, the other kingdom. There's only two. Well, growing out of this is the promise then of the non-participation in the day of the Lord for the believers He's writing to and to us. Back to verse 4 again, that the day, you're not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Now here, that day is just shorthand for the day of the Lord. It's mentioned back in verse 2. Verse 2 says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now he just calls it the day. And as we've learned in our study in a previous sermon, that's the future day of judgment, the future tribulation when God's wrath will be poured out on unbelievers, the unbelieving earth dwellers after the rapture. The future day of the Lord. It's a day of darkness. And it's a day that was prophesied to be darkness, even in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. There's never been anything like it, nor will there ever be again after it. Zephaniah 1, verse 15. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom clouds and thick darkness one more amos 5 18 and 20 for what purpose will the day of the will the day of the lord be to you it will be darkness not light will not the day of the lord be darkness instead of light even gloom with no brightness in it the answer is yes that's the day of the lord darkness so this is all clear This time of future destruction, the day of the Lord, is going to fall upon those living at that time who are in the realm of darkness, the darkness of sin and alienation from God. But this future time of judgment will not overtake believers by surprise. Like a thief overtakes his victims. Why? Because we've been transferred, transferred to a different realm, We possess an entirely different nature now, so we don't have anything to fear about the day of the Lord. church will have been taken up in the rapture. That's the event that's going to inaugurate the day of the Lord. And for the unbelievers, they're not prepared. For them, it's like a thief overtaking someone. They're immersed in the realm of darkness. They will be overtaken, but there's another realm, a contrasting realm. Number two, the realm of light, the realm of light. Now we find believers characterized, and he he does it positively at first, verse 5. For you, talking to the believers, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. There's an opening, connecting term there, for, and that's pointing to a reason now. This is the reason why believers are not surprised by that day is coming by a thief. And the explanation has to do with something so important. It is the believer's identity, and this is crucial, that we understand our identity. Far from being in the darkness, this is who we are sons of light, sons of day, daughters of light, daughters of day. The meaning is children of light, children of day. Now we're going to look a little more specifically at those two descriptions, but just keep in mind something about the expression whenever it begins sons of in the Bible. You find this even in the Old Testament. Sons of something is a way to express the dominant influence of a person's life. There's a phrase in the Old Testament, for example, that says the sons of Belial, the sons of Satan. This is the the dominant influence of someone's life when you have sons of with something. So to describe believers as sons of light and sons of day is to say that the dominant influence in our lives is not darkness, it's light, it's day. The first one, sons of light, That just means that we belong then to this other spiritual realm, spiritual light. So spiritual light is the pervading element, the pervading influence of our character. Doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we never have moments of temptation where we look at the world and we're enticed by it and moments of time where we might think and act like the world, but at the end of the day, we don't stay in that because it's not who we are. It's not the predominant influence on us. Light is. And the reason we are that way is because of what John chapter 3 discusses, the new birth. We're born from above. And because of that new birth, we have a whole new spiritual capacity now to not be in intellectual darkness, but to know the truth. And we have this spiritual capacity that we didn't have to not just give in to all the dark deeds of the world, but we have the spiritual capacity now To live our lives influenced by the light, the truth that we know. We've passed from a a, a sphere of darkness into this other realm of, of light at the time we were born again. That moment we were brought to saving faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior. That fits with Ephesians 5, verse 8. Ephesians 5, verse 8 For you were formerly darkness. Yeah. But now you are light in the Lord. So we should live that way, walk as children of light, because that's who we are, light in the Lord. But we're not just sons of light. He says we're, our identity is affirmed another way here, sons of day. In that same verse, sons of, sons of day. These are parallel phrases, but the second one is reinforcing now the first one, And the first one is Paul's point about our identity, so this just stresses our identity even more. We are of the light, and light belongs to day. Darkness belongs to night, light belongs to day. One comment about the word day here. He's using the word day here differently than he used it when he was talking about the day coming as a thief in the night, or the day of the Lord. That previous day was shorthand for day of the Lord, not here. Day can be used for other things as well. So there's no direct reference here to the eschatological day of the Lord, and we know that grammatically even. There's no definite article here with the term day here in the original. So the point is that believers as sons of day belong to then spiritual day rather than night. This is our realm. We're in possession of light even. Now, there are other statements in Scripture that depict our identity. I just want to give you a few. We're we're not just sons of day and sons of night. I mean, these are beautiful expressions. But to really understand our our identity, catch any of those statements when they come up in Scripture, when you're reading and and listening to Scripture and so forth. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it says that we are the ones who walk in newness of life, In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says that we're new creatures in Christ. That's another way to express our identity, new creatures in Christ. Old things, the old realm has passed away. Now we're in a new realm. Galatians 6, 15 says we're new creations. Ephesians 2, verse 6 says, well, this is who you are if you're in Christ. You're seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, even now. That's part of our identity, the one seated in heaven. I love Colossians 3, the statement about being hidden with Christ. I mean, think about it. Christ is a member of the Godhead. He's, he's, He's in the Godhead, and we're in Christ, so we're buried in the Godhead. How much assurance does that bring? This is all part of our identity, and it's so important that we understand our identity. So back to verse 5. All of that is included in being sons of day and sons of light. And all of it is guaranteed to every believer. There's no tier here where you have some believers have reached these identities and some are still working on it. That's not true at all. In fact, look at the term all in verse 5. You are all sons of light and sons of day. Paul hadn't learned the term y'all yet, so he had to... He had to stretch it out just a little bit. You know, you are all. Why is that important? Because it applies, the same truth applies to every believer. Every believer has the same identity. Yeah, but some are really faint-hearted believers. Does it apply to them? Yes, it applies to them. Equally. What about those who are confused about some things in Scripture, confused about eschatology, but they're really in Christ? It applies to them, same identity. What about those who struggle with the flesh or struggle with doubts and those who are weak and those who have failed? Yes, I love to say this sometimes, that the term all in Greek means all. And Paul knew this was true about some of the Thessalonians he was writing to. He knew them. There were those there who were confused, those who had, were struggling, those who were weak, those who were doubting, those who had failed. What a glorious thing it was for them to read that, no, this, this is all of us. Well, the positive characterization is now followed by a negative, and I think he does that strategically as well, just to emphasize the positive by giving you the negative right after it. Verse 5, we are not of night Nor of darkness. So night and darkness are figurative again. Night representing alienation from God, darkness, the realm of sin and iniquity, and all of that. But I want you to notice the preposition. See, it's not just pronouns that are important, prepositions are important. It's that little word of. What's important about it is that he did not use the preposition in. We are not in night nor in darkness. We actually live in this dark realm of darkness. We live in this world, but we're not of this world is the idea. To be of something is stronger than to be in something. Because of is pointing to a person's nature. It points to who they really are. It points to the domain that they're living in, the domain to which they belong, the domain to which they belong. So, this negative indicates that believers don't belong to the same realm as the night people. We're not in the domain of intellectual darkness. Just take that one. We're not in that realm because we know the truth. John 8, verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free, Christ said. That's who we are. We know the truth. 2 Peter 1, verse 12, you've been established in the truth which is present with you. So we're not in intellectual darkness, and we're not in the moral darkness, even though there are moments of of confusion about theology. We're still not in intellectual darkness. We're not in moral darkness, even though there are moments of failure, because we, we really do seek to practice the truth that we know. John 3, verse 21. That's who we are, he who practices the truth. They come to the light that's our lifestyle that's what we were desiring to live out and the point again is that all believers live in an entirely different sphere than those who experience who are going to experience the day of the lord therefore these original readers they didn't have to fear what they were fearing they didn't have to fear that they'd miss the rapture they didn't have to fear being caught up in the day of the lord didn't have to fear experiencing God's condemnation because they live in a totally separate sphere of life where judgment doesn't come. And notice one more thing. It's back to something about pronouns again. There's been a change in pronoun here. He's been using the second person plural, pronoun you, and that's the main one he's used to try to contrast to the they and the them. But now he switches to first-person plural, we. And what he's doing there is he, on behalf of Silas and Timothy as well, they are identifying themselves with the readers. We are all in the same realm. We have the same identity. And that's important because he's about to move on to some exhortations of how believers are to live, and so he's including himself there too. These exhortations apply to him too. There are responsibilities and duties that go along with being sons of day and sons of light. Short passage, but every passage has implications for us. So I want to conclude with just giving you at least the ones I thought of. There are five of them, I believe, all together. Here's the first one. It's just reinforcing and repeating some things, summarizing some things I've already said. Number one, all Christians do have the same identity. I just want to read that great verse from Colossians 1:13 again. "He rescued us. God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son." We're all transfers. But he, here's the point. We need to keep going back to what our identity is. It'll help us in our own life. It'll also help with things like disunity and division. Because this is what binds all believers together at the end of the day. Let's work hard on to remember that. Because of the world we live in, it's a world characterized by division and disunity and hatred and racism and prejudice and animosity and so on. We need to remember as believers, but we're separate from all of that in this sense. No matter who we are, if we are in Christ, we do share the same identity. We need the Lord's help with this to help us focus on our true identities. No matter where we live, what culture we're from, no matter our ethnicity, No matter what experiences we've we've all had in our past, no matter our personality quirks and traits, no matter our personal preferences on so many issues, none of those things, even if they're important issues, are what bind us together. It is Christ who binds us together because He is the one who is our common Savior and Lord. We need to focus on that over all the differences that can exist. Second one, we are to live in light of our identity. That's why I want us to remember our identity. It's a privilege to be saved out of darkness. It's a privilege to be rescued. It's a privilege to have been transferred. It's a privilege to follow Christ as Lord. But that kind of privilege brings duties and responsibilities. Many verses say that. Romans 13 verse 12, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. And put on the armor of light. We're not to be like the world. There are certain deeds and ways of thinking and actions that characterize worldly people based on how Scripture defines them. Lay those aside. Deeds of sin. Wickedness. Ephesians 5, 8 and 11. You were formerly darkness. Now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We read that one. Verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. It doesn't even stop there. We're not only supposed to shun the deeds of darkness and not participate in them. We're to expose them, call them what they are. First John 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In other words, we're We're each seeking to live in light of our identity and not focusing on the things that could divide us. And we're taking such joy in that identity that we're increasing our sense of fellowship with one another. Call this lifestyle. I read this somewhere, I don't know where, but it's simple. It's the lifestyle of light. The lifestyle of light but it doesn't just include some behavior and thinking. We're to actually have an impact, not to try to fix the world, but to proclaim the light. First Peter 2 verse 9, different identity terms are used. We're a chosen race. That's who we are. We're a royal priesthood. That's priesthood. That's who we are. We're a holy nation. That's who we are. A people of God's own possession. That's who we are. But all of that is for a purpose, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him, the one who rescued us from the realm of darkness. We're to proclaim the truth about him and tell the world how glorious he is. When Christ told us in Matthew 5 verse 14 that we're to be the light of the world, that wasn't talking about some sort of political action committee to try to fix broken things. He was talking about gospel truth, about God and People and sin and judgment and Christ and salvation. That kind of light is why we're here. We do have a responsibility to live in light of our identity. Number three, something else I've already said, but here we summarize it. Number three, there are only two kinds of people. It made me think of Matthew 7, the great Sermon on the Mount, because of the way Jesus depicted the two, the two realms. He had different ways of saying it. He described it by using the term gate. There's the narrow gate and the broad gate, which means there's a path that's narrow and a path that's broad. The broad gate and the broad path, that's the path that most of the world is on. is the world of darkness, the realm of darkness. There's a narrow path, a narrow gate. It's actually the minority who are in the light. Then he called it later on, the same sermon, a type of tree. There's the good tree and the bad tree. The good tree... Are the sons of day. They're the ones who bring forth good fruit. The bad tree, that's the world of darkness. They bring forth bad fruit. There's the two foundations, the one of rock, the one of sand. It's depicting really the same thing. In Matthew 25, verse 46, he even uses the different destinies to describe the two groups. One group, the destiny is eternal life, the other group is the destiny of eternal punishment. I think it's helpful that we keep going back to the fact that there's only two kinds of people because in our world, we divide people up a lots of ways. And it's true that we have a diverse mixture of people in our world. There's all sorts of cultures, and I'm glad of that. I like the different cultures. I like learning different cultures. I like experiencing different cultures. There's all sorts of cultures. There's also sorts of languages. I not only like our languages, I like other languages. I like learning them. There's different ethnic groups, ethnicities, different political views, and so forth. I mean, there are religions, false and true, you know, in the world, but I'm just saying there are all these kinds of ways that we divide up people in the world, distinctions that are there. But you can boil it all down. There's actually only two kinds of people believers and unbelievers, saved and lost. Those who are forgiven, those who are not. Those who are going to live forever the Lord, those who are going to be forever separated and apart from the Lord in judgment and darkness. What there isn't is anything in between. No man's land. Or to borrow the name of a show I really loved to watch growing up, a black and white show called The Twilight Zone. Some of you are already hearing the little thing in your head, you know, that little thing that goes with it. The Twilight Zone. Used to watch that blow my mind. Some sometimes I'd go away from it, trying to figure out what I just saw. It was called that after an expression. There's actually an expression called the Twilight Zone. It's an expression that refers to a conceptual area that's undefined. That's what it means. It's an intermediate zone, undefined zone. So we. We use it sometimes. It's the twilight zone between risk and reward, or the twilight zone between the, the rich and the poor, or the working class and middle class. Maybe it would be a better way to say that one. There's this hard-to-define area, not true in spiritual things. No spiritual twilight zone. There are the redeemed and the unredeemed. There's darkness and light. There are night people and there are day people. Number four, there's something we can say about all night people. If they die in the night, if they die in their darkness of their sin, all are going to be ultimately judged. That's the ultimate destiny of Satan. It's the ultimate destiny of all Satan's demons. In the eternal darkness of hell... But Scripture says it's also the destiny of all unbelievers who die in their unbelief. Matthew 8, verse 12. The loss will be cast out into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The last implication is the greatest one. But it's a narrow one. Only in Christ is there deliverance from the darkness. There's only one way to be rescued. John 1 verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 8 verse 12, Jesus is speaking here, and he said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the only choice. In Acts 28, Paul was rehearsing his conversion on the road to Damascus and the risen Christ had come to him, crashed into his life and called him into the ministry and told him to go do something. And Paul is recounting that, Acts 26 verse 18, that Jesus told Paul to preach the gospel to the lost of the nations. Why? So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance, eternal life among those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ. So let me just close with a question. Which realm are you in? I didn't ask how good you're doing. I didn't ask how good you are. I didn't ask all that you've learned. I didn't ask if you've reached perfection yet. I didn't ask really anything else but whether you're in the realm of light or you're in darkness. Do you love the things of light? Do you love the things of God? Or do you love the things of the world more? You could evaluate yourself one more way, the issue of trust. Are you trusting in Christ alone to rescue you from the world you were born into, the darkness? Are you trusting in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sin, your darkness? Or are you trusting in something else? Like being good enough. Like cleaning up your life. Like joining the church. Like being baptized. Like giving money. Like morality. Like being a good husband or father, mother, wife. All good things. But even good things are not to be what we are trusting in for rescue, for forgiveness. So inherent in a little passage like this is a command. It's it's an invitation, but it's more than that. It's a command. Come to the light. And that means coming to Christ to save you and to be your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us so clearly of our identity that we're not the they and the them. We're the we. We're all in, the, in this kingdom if we're in Christ only because of you, Lord. By your grace and mercy, you have rescued us from darkness and transferred us to light. We take no credit for it. We're just here to say thank you for saving us. We were drowning in darkness and you saved us. Father, we confess that we do have those moments in time where we live as if that's not true and think as if it's not true. We forget who we are and what you've done and who you are. Forgive us of that. So grateful that you're a forgiving, patient, merciful, gracious God. But help us to remember who we are Give us the strength we need to live our lives in light of it, and I do pray for anyone here whose hearts are darkened that you would do what only you can do. Open their eyes to see the light of Christ and to come to Him in humble faith and submission and repentance to serve Him so they'll be saved. In our Savior's name, amen.